for we ask it in his name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses of the chapter today. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. <clears throat> I've entitled this message, Don't Mess with the Message. <clears throat> I don't know if you're aware of this, but there are a lot of efforts throughout history where people have sought to bring unity among people of different uh, religions. They've set out to sort of try to bring down some barriers and bring about unity among people of different faiths. Surely you've seen the bumper sticker uh, tolerance or coexist, and the letters are made up of different religious symbols. But greater strides than making bumper stickers have been taken in what can be called ecumenical progress. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Unity sounds great, but it cannot be real. Or in the end, bring glory to God or, or uh, help, be helpful to anyone if it's at the cost of truth. Unity for unity's sake upon the altar of, uh, sacrificial altar of truth, cannot, in the end, be good. You and I can disagree on such things as uh, who was the greatest president of our country, you know, throughout history. We could, we could have a disagreement upon that and still be unified because this is just a matter of subjective opinion. But if we want to show genuine, effective unity among churches, there must be agreement on objective truth. There must be solidarity to essential Christian doctrine as set forth in the Scriptures. In the 90s, there were several attempts to bring about unity between Roman Catholics and Evangelicals, Roman Catholics and Protestant churches. One such document was called, rather... Uh, uh, transparently, ECT, which stands for Evangelicals and Catholics, together. There was a follow-up document by the same committee of people that drafted that document, and it was called The Gift of Salvation, an attempt to smooth out some, um, some other uh, areas of disagreement. But both doctrines were utter failures. Both this ECT document and the Gift of Salvation document, they both utterly failed because they attempted to blur the sharp distinctions between the two belief systems. They tried to get two groups who believed radically different things to vaguely agree to those things on paper. One of the key issues was the doctrine of justification. Catholics and Protestants, friends, do not agree on the doctrine of justification, no matter what document purports to say that they do. Evangelicals, like us, believe the Bible teaches that we are justified through imputation of Christ's righteousness as a result of our faith. That is, by grace, we repent and believe in Jesus, and then God declares us innocent of our sins on the sole grounds not of our righteousness, but on a righteousness that's foreign to us, on the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is credited to our account. You can read about this doctrine in Genesis chapter 15 and Romans chapter 3 as a couple of examples. 
On the contrary, Catholics do not believe this. Catholics believe that men are justified as a result of works. They teach that Christ's righteousness gets infused into us little by little as as a result of our, our, our decision to live in an increasingly religious way. And so God declares just, according to the Roman Catholics, those who are actually just on their own account, not on the basis of Christ's righteousness alone. A sharper disagreement on a topic of faith simply cannot be found. Doctrine matters. Doctrine necessarily divides. You cannot mess with the message about God and sin and Christ and faith. Messing with the message at the very least leads to Christians who don't live in the assurance and delight and good of the gospel. But messing with the message, particularly at its core, like messing with the doctrine of justification, for example, or the doctrine of resurrection, as was happening in Corinth, that our text is all about. Messing with the message in that way can result in abandoning the faith altogether and the salvation that faith in Christ offers. This is a watershed moment as we arrive at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, friends. Listen carefully as the Spirit of Christ would press these first 11 verses of God's Word into your hearts. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. I just want to read verse 12. This is into the next section for some context for you. We're going to refer to it. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? It's important for us to keep asking ourselves, where are we in, in this long and, uh, and, and, and complicated book? Where are we? And also, why has, has, why has God given us this message at this particular place in the book? Let me give you a little bit of context to remind you. Since chapter 7 and verse 1, Paul has been dealing with various um, topics that the church has been struggling with. Uh, it, th- they've been sent to him in a letter, chapter 7 tells us, and he's been dealing with these topics uh, one at a time. 
topics that the Corinthians were struggling to handle as spiritual people. And so he has been handling a wide range of situations that require a spiritual response. If if we had the time, we could maybe take some suggestions from you that are leaping to your mind. I'll, I'll read a few of them. He's talked about marital intimacy. He's talked about resolving differences, sharing the Lord's table, keeping secular culture out of Christian worship, and for the last few chapters, how and when to use spiritual gifts. But part of the difficulty of this letter, friends, part of the difficulty of of this letter is the distance of Corinth in that day to our church in our day. Paul has been handling not only topics that we all struggle with, but he's been handling a lot of topics that were, are strange to us, very specific to the problems of Corinth in the first century, realities that we don't deal with in our culture, frankly. For instance, the Corinthians were wrestling with spiritual leaders who excelled in the flourishing language of the philosophers. Um, we ran into this in the first few chapters of the book. That's not something that divides us today. You know, does Dan employ, you know, philosophical flourish, you know, better than Jeff, and so I'm going to follow him and that sort of thing. That isn't really something we struggle with. Um, Paul's been talking about whether or not to wear head coverings in the worship services. He talked about that in chapter 11. He, He even will talk about later in this chapter about this practice in Corinth of baptizing people on behalf of other Christians that have, that have died. I mean, th- these are just some strange topics for us to try to get our hands around. He, he's, he's more recently um, talked about how to view miraculous spiritual gifts, like speaking in tongues and sharing word of prophecy that the Lord has revealed to you. And none of these practices are seen in our day. They, they were unique to first cent- the first century church, but what has remained the same, What has remained the same is the gospel that was first proclaimed by Jesus and those who surrounded him. The gospel, which means good news. The penultimate chapter here, chapter 15, Paul writes of this. The same message proclaimed by Christians today as the message the apostles first took throughout the world, including Paul's message to the Corinthians. Objective truth that is relevant in every age. And that message, that unchanging message, that ancient message of mercy and power, centers on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But some in Corinth had been messing with the message. As I mentioned in verse 12 there, um, it's, it's raised very clearly for us. How can some of you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? Well, in this, this chapter... Paul writes 58 verses on the import of Christ's resurrection, the resurrection of the saints, and the implications of both. Such an important work of doctrine is this chapter. We're going to take a few weeks to cover it. Today, I'm going to take a small bite of the 58 verses. We're going to cover these first 11 verses. And in them, I hope to convince you of this theme. Denying the resurrection endangers all of it. Denying the resurrection endangers all of it. To lead the Corinthians to this conclusion, Paul takes them up a ladder of gospel thinking, if you will. For today, we're only going to get to one of those arguments. 
In effect, Paul says that the, the resurrection is so central to the gospel message that it's like one of the side rails of a ladder, that the, the part that the rungs or the steps are attached to it, without that side rail, the whole ladder falls apart. And so the gospel falls apart without the belief, uh, the, the, the proclamation of the resurrection. This text is intricate and so important to our understanding and our guarding of our faith from those who would try to lead us astray, friends, because it's happening in every age. People are trying to get us to forfeit what we believe in order to have some kind of tepid unity. We're going to take it slow then. So let's look at this first reason that denying the resurrection endangers all of it. It comes to us in two parts. Paul's going to remind the Corinthians about the gospel that they first heard and believed. He's going to go back in history for them in their own minds and say, you remember the gospel that I preached to you, the gospel that you believed, the gospel that included the resurrection. And then secondly, he's going to talk about this very simple reality that the resurrection that they had heard about and believed was actually true. So that's the first two pieces of this, of this argument that he's going to, for this long chapter, try to ground the Corinthians in the doctrine of the resurrection. So let's begin uh, with this. Paul reminded the Corinthians of the gospel that they had heard and believed. And that that gospel, so crucial, in that gospel, so crucial was the resurrection to it that it was like one of the rails that gives shape and structure to a ladder. And we see this in the first four verses of our text. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain." It's impossible to know how many in the church were denying the resurrection. It's also impossible to know why they were denying the resurrection. Lots of writers have suggested ideas, but all of them are guesses. What we do know, though, is that some were indeed trying to shake the foundation of faith in the church about the resurrection, about what they had originally heard and believed. And so Paul takes them back to the beginning, helpfully reminding them of what they had heard from him and what had made such a transformation in their lives. Acts 18 and verse 8 records that time. Many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed. And he took them back to that time. Whatever Paul had preached, that message, it had come to mean everything to the Corinthians. They heard it and they received it, verse 1 says. That is, they accepted it as God's word and embraced it as true. Do you remember when you heard the gospel and embraced it as true? That point in time when, when the gospel of grace, the message of Christ's death for you and his, his resurrection came to you through the mouth of, of some friend or preacher or Sunday school teacher and you believed it is true? Paul's taking the Corinthians back to that day in their minds. 
to when they had heard Paul's gospel and believed it to be the truth upon which they would stake their lives. And so they had, according to the Christian Standard Bible, they had taken their stand upon it. That is, they had believed it to be true and professed it to be their truth. What's more, since that time, since the time they first believed, since the time that that, that they had placed their repentant faith in what Christ had done for them, since that time, God had been keeping them saved. Notice the language of verse 2 there. He's talking about the gospel he had preached that they had believed by which you are being saved. Now that might be strange language to you. You're like, I thought when you got saved it was a point in time. And and that's exactly true. But the Bible speaks of three different tenses when speaking about salvation. Most of the time we speak about salvation in the past tense. Like when Paul speaks very famously in Ephesians 2.8, by grace you have been saved in the past through faith. He looked back to the point when they repented of their sins and trusted in Christ to reconcile them to God. We speak this way when we talk about the moment we first believed. We look back at a time and we say, it was then that God saved me from my sins. I speak this way when I talk about my conversion. I was saved back in 1997. But the Bible also speaks of a future tense, a future salvation. In Mark 13, for example, Christ speaks of the terrible suffering that will take place at the end of the age. Listen to Mark 13 and verse 13. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Future tense. Jesus here speaks of the future of Christians when their salvation will be consummated, when they will finally be saved out of the sinful world and into their heavenly reward. But there is yet a third sense, the sense that is being used in this text. An ongoing sense of God keeping us saved until we reach heaven. This is the third way, and what Paul uses in our text. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel by which you are being saved. Presently. The assurance that you are being kept by God for heaven. Being moved toward your future salvation. That is what you experience if you continue to believe about Christ what you originally embraced when you heard it. When you placed your trust in Christ. For whoever claims to believe one day and abandons that belief, he shows himself never to have been a Christian in the first place. A person like that demonstrates that they had believed in vain. That's the language he uses there in the second half of verse 2. And so continuing in faith, holding fast to the word that was preached to you is proof that you are currently being saved, kept for heaven, headed toward your eventual eternal place with Christ in heaven. But what was that gospel that had been preached to them? What was that gospel that they had believed to be true, that they had confessed to be their own, and and that gospel that their faith in it was, was keeping them saved to the end? What was the content of that message that had arrested their souls and changed the very course of their lives? This is what Paul was bringing them back to. Look at it, friends, in verses 3 and 4. The contents very plainly. I deliver to you as of first importance 
what I also received. This is what I told you. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the core of the Gospel. The message that Paul had preached. The message that the Corinthians had believed. The death of Christ for our sins, Him serving as our substitute to take God's penalty for our sins, His death satisfying God's justice in our case, that was always God's plan to redeem sinners as predicted by the entire message of the Old Testament. That's why He says, in accordance with the Scriptures. It's why, it's why I had Nathan read from Jonah. That text predicts the, the, the death of Jesus Christ. The ram caught in the thicket on Mount Moriah that died in the place of Isaac spoke of it. The Passover lambs that died instead of the Jews in Egypt spoke of it. The animals sacrificed daily at the temple to atone for Israel's ongoing sins spoke of the death of Jesus the efficiency and finality and satisfaction of his substitutionary death, death was what all those stories and worship practices foretold. But Christ's death alone didn't fill out the gospel message. As, as critical as the death of Jesus is, it's not the full content of the gospel message. Yes, he died. In fact, death is spoken of again and again throughout the chapter. You can't hardly go a sentence or two without running into the idea. He died and his corpse was buried. He suffered until his life drained out of him unto death. A lifeless body taken from a cross, wrapped in grave clothes, as was common for corpses, and sealed in a tomb. This is what this chapter speaks of. It's what the gospel heralds. But as I said, his death is only half the story of what Christ did for sinners. He died for them for their sins, yes, but he also rose from the dead. More than 20 times in this chapter, Paul speaks of his resurrection. Not only did Christ's death fulfill the entire Old Testament scriptures, but Paul speaks of his resurrection in the same exalted way. He was raised on the third day, and you heard the repetition, right? In accordance with the scriptures. So, so Noah, emerging from the ark, spoke of it. Joseph, being delivered from the pit and later Potiphar's prison, spoke of the resurrection of Jesus. Jonah being released from the belly of the great fish onto dry ground spoke of it. The, the, the Israelites coming out of the split sea on dry, uh, dry uh, ground spoke of it. Not only did the death fulfill the entire Old Testament Scriptures, so too did, did Christ's resurrection. So if the death of Christ is one of the rails of the gospel ladder, the resurrection's the other. You cannot have a ladder without both rails. You, and, and so, likewise, you cannot have the biblical gospel without the, both the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without his victory over death, without proof of the Father's approval of his payment for sin, 
without the promise his resurrection made that others would follow him on the last day, friends, you cannot have the biblical gospel. To compromise on this point for unity's sake is tragic. Denying the resurrection endangers all of it. To deny the resurrection denies its central place in the gospel message the Corinthians heard and believed. That's why he took him back to that time. To deny the resurrection is to deny what is of first importance that he shared with them in verse 3. To deny the resurrection is to deny their hope that hearing of the resurrection of Jesus put in their souls that they one day too would be resurrected. To deny the resurrection puts the gospel message and the salvation of everyone who believed it at risk. But Paul reminded them of something else. He reminded them of the message that saved them. That was those first four verses. The message that included the hope of resurrection. But he also reminded them that the resurrection of Christ was unquestionably true. Paul reminded the Corinthians of the gospel that they had heard and believed, and also that the resurrection of their Savior had actually, had really taken place, as attested by countless witnesses. And this is seen in verses 5 through 11. It's astounding, really. It's so thrilling to think about this, friends. Not only the message that saved your soul, that included the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but, friends, that it actually happened. It's true. It's not some magical nonsense. It's not one of many religions. It is what happened. It's truth. It's historical. People saw Jesus after he was killed walking around. There's so many witnesses to it. The, The resurrection was what some in Corinth were backing away from, right? That was the problem. Perhaps they were saying something like, okay, Jesus maybe rose, but that was a a one-time thing, never to be repeated. Maybe they were saying, he only appeared to rise, and and so when you rise, it won't be a bodily resurrection. It's just going to look like it, sort of. Whatever they were saying. Whatever they were saying was false. Because Jesus was raised bodily. People saw it. It really happened. All right, listen. We didn't see it. And the Corinthians didn't see it either. And so coming to believe the gospel that includes the truth of the resurrection, that only comes by grace. That's a gift God gives us of faith. No one believes anything about Christ or his death and resurrection, their need to escape the penalty for their sins, their their need to be reconciled to God. No one believes any of it unless God graciously opens their eyes to see it. His free gift is what gives people the ability to turn from their sins, to see the gospel is true, to confess the risen Christ is their only hope. That only happens by God's grace. 
Paul says the same of himself in verses 9 and 10. I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. He didn't deserve to be saved, is what he's saying. He didn't deserve any of it. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Can you relate? By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, the other apostles. That is proving his, his, his faith. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Wow. Look at that and reflect on it, friends. God's grace made God's enemy his servant. One who was dedicated to extinguishing the church, dedicated his life to propagating the gospel that would expand it. God's grace had its powerful, life-altering effect on Paul. God's grace is what produced a zeal to dedicate his, his life to the spread of the mission. And so the grace of God had changed the Corinthians by the message of Christ's death and resurrection. They didn't suss it out. They didn't look at a bunch of evidence. They didn't watch some video, you know, portrayal of it. Nobody depicted it, you know, in the ground with a stick or something. By God's grace, they heard the gospel message of the death and resurrection of Jesus and believed it. They didn't need to see the resurrection of Christ. They didn't need to examine evidence in the empty tomb. They just had to hear the message and believe it. God's grace supplied the power. It was the same with each of us, wasn't it? Believer in Jesus? Are you smarter than your unsaved friends? Were you born you know, less sinful, more spiritual than the next guy? No, of course not. It's by God's grace that you came to believe. We heard of what Christ did, and God convinced us in our bones that it was true. But that amazing reality doesn't change the fact that the gospel is a message of what actually took place. And so there were eyewitnesses. It happened in human history. Jesus entered this world and other people in this world saw him raised from the dead. And Paul uses this argument to undermine others who would deny the miraculous. Many women saw Jesus suffer on the cross, we're told in Matthew 27 and verses 55 and 56. A Roman centurion saw him, took his last breath in Mark 15, verse 39. Joseph of Arimathea handled his corpse and wrapped it for burial in Matthew 27, verses 59 and 60. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where the tomb he was placed in was. Mark 46, that must be 1346. But the trouble in Corinth wasn't that some bad influences were questioning Jesus' death. That was well attested to. But rather, the possibility of a resurrection for his followers, that's what they were questioning. And so Paul starts out with Christ's resurrection. And again, there were lots of and lots of people who saw his resurrected body. There were lots and lots of eyewitnesses to the greatest miracle in human history. 
There were many, many people who saw Jesus do what no one could fathom. After laying down his life, they saw him pick it up again. As easily as if he were rising from a catnap. He rose from the dead just like he predicted. Over and over he predicted it. And so Paul reminds his friends that those in the church who were trying to shake their belief in a resurrection were not only speaking against the message that saved them, but they were also speaking against the reality that Christ's resurrection promised. Christ's resurrection was true. It was massively attested to. Look at verses 5 through 8. Try to count it up if you want. He appeared to Cephas, that is Peter. I mean, that's enough, right? A witness to the resurrection, but so much more. He, he appeared to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Go talk to them! Some of them have, 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 have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. It was true, friends. The Corinthians believed Christ's death and resurrection by grace, but it wasn't a fantasy. It wasn't a make-believe story. It was absolutely true. Countless people saw him. The, the men on the road to Emmaus aren't even listed in, that, in, those, test, in, in those witnesses. 500 at once. All the apostles. It's historically and gloriously true. Christ was killed for our transgressions, and then he came back to life. It happened. And those that would try to undermine that fact go against what happened in history, attested by many witnesses. Paul holds all of this out to them to encourage them to believe that they too would be raised. That's the upshot. That's the... That's the that's the reward for believing in Christ's resurrection, that they too would be raised to life. He was, in a, he was essentially saying, if you have faith to believe that, that Jesus died and rose again, and they did, so we preach and so you believe, verse 11 says. If they believed Christ rose from the dead, surely they could believe he would raise them also to life, those that were in Christ. I mean, Jesus had promised his disciples this. Many, many places, but, but I mean, remind yourself of John chapter 14, where Jesus spoke of his, his follow, to his followers of, of them having a place with him forever in the kingdom of God. He said this in John 14, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Friends, denying, denying the resurrection endangers all of it, all of what we believe. We cannot compromise our doctrine for some, some kind of superficial unity. Evangelicals and Catholics tried it. Some in Corinth tried to sway the church to do it. You know, we've been speaking a lot about 
miraculous spiritual gifts that have faded out of the church by God's design. Tongue speaking, healing, prophecy, they no longer have an effect on us. Miraculous spiritual gifts no longer have their impact on Christians' faith today. But the greatest miracle ever, the resurrection of the Christ, continues to change people for eternity, even today. The gospel of the crucified and risen Savior continues to rescue sinners from the wrath to come and ensure them they will be raised to life with Christ when he returns to, to, to gather up those who hold fast to the word preached to them. Even the word of Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Friends, do you have that kind of faith today? Do you have a faith that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead? Do you have the hope of your own future resurrection based upon what Jesus did for you? Friends, hold fast to the truth. Don't let anyone undermine it. Don't let go of the doctrine of the resurrection, for with it goes the whole biblical gospel. So how do we apply something like this other than that, other than holding on to the gospel that you once believed? I've got three applications for you in closing. You probably will come up with many more. I would ask you, are you a Christian, but your life is consumed with worry? Do you believe Jesus died for you and rose again, yet you are consumed by anxiety? Are you given to despair? Consider what Christ's resurrection promises for those who hold fast to the gospel of your Savior. Your Savior who blew a hole in the back of the grave and knows the way out of it and will lead you through it. Think of the implications. Friends, your future is bright indeed. Don't let worry consume you. Put your trust in the small things in Jesus who took care of the big thing. If death is dead to you, what do you have to fear? Secondly, are you afraid to share the gospel with your unsaved friends and family? You know what the number one reason Christians give for not evangelizing uh, the lost? I'm afraid I won't have the answers to the questions that they'll have. I don't know the Bible well enough. I don't know the Christian faith well enough, and so I'm just not going to put myself in that sort of situation. Friends, you don't need to know everything to be part of God's mission going forward. Now, that's not a pass to not read the Bible and not, get, not study and not get equipped. We should do those things. But what you need to talk to people about out there to talk to them about Jesus is just to tell them what he did. He died for their sins. He was buried. He was dead. He was crushed under the weight of it, under God's wrath. And then he rose again. And if you turn from your sins and believe in him and what he did for you, you'll rise too. You'll rise to everlasting life. Sins forgiven. Reconciled to God forever.
That's what you need to know. Don't shy away from helping people that are desperately lost and headed towards hell. Don't shy away from sharing the gospel message. You don't need to know everything. Know that. Lastly, be committed to studying Christian doctrine. Be committed to studying what you believe so that you will not be easily convinced to abandon things that are essential. Several times throughout the school year, we, this year for the first time, we're doing a couple of months uh, of Mark's gospel and then stopping, pausing for a month and doing theology for a solid month in Sunday school class. We're going to do that several times. That's just a way for you to study Christian doctrine. But know the faith, friends, so that you won't easily be pushed off of what is essential. You won't be easily duped into, into being led astray. Denying the resurrection endangers all of it. Let's remember the gospel we heard and believed. That gospel that included his resurrection. And let's remember that the death and resurrection of the Lord is what we cling to. What we cling to is absolutely true. Take a few moments of just quiet reflection, glory in God in this, and ask him what he may be calling you to do. Listen for the Spirit's voice 